Thank you, um, Jim. I'm going to be talking about navigating our chaos in our family or our lives with prayer. And as we all know, prayer is communication with the sovereign God and King of the universe. And those of us who know him, which it seems like most of us do here, we call him Father. Um, and our prayers tend to vary in content, frequency, intensity, depending on our perceived needs and the chaos that we've all described in our own Lives um, definitely um, requires this need for prayer. Um, my husband and I, at the beginning of summer, were relaxing down at South Padre and looking out across the bay um, to the mainland. And at high tide, that picture is of um, is like this, looking back towards the mainland. It looks like you could get in the boat right at the dock. If you wanted to go straight over to one of those little white dwellings on the other side, you could just make a beeline for it. But not too many minutes later, this is what it, what it looks like. So if we'd gotten in the boat and gone straight across, we would have uh, found an obstacle in our way. So we, um, my husband has said this for many years, that prayer is like our GPS with God. And so um, the GPS gives latitude, longitude, sometimes altitude. But it also can, if you can program in, it can tell you what the right path to your destination should be. So it's an awesome thing to have. Um, So we are blessed to have prayer in our lives and available to us. The goals and objectives here will be to understand the role of prayer in our lives and to understand some of the principles, the biblical principles, uh, regarding prayer. I think societally speaking that most people will pray when they get in a real tight spot. <laughs> and that tends to be the place where, you know, I mean, our, we're, um, I don't know, we've got imminent death. Uh, there's even a story that uh, Chuck Swindoll tells of a man who was taped, a reporter, I think, that was taped at the edge of Mount St. Helens when it was about to erupt many years ago. <laughs> Um, and, and that reporter had a mic like I have today, and you could just hear him. I mean, he, who knows whether he was a godly man or not, but you could just hear the fear. So when there's not uh, the comfort, the safety, the presence of another human being or whatever, and we get in tight situations, our natural reaction is to pray. Um, he, Chuck Swindoll, I love his example, so I'm going to use another one. He spoke of a time when he was on a plane going to... Um, New York, and the, it's usually a long, boring flight, he said, from Dallas or whatever, but the pilot got on not too far from the destination and said that, that he couldn't get the landing gear to engage, and so they were going to spend some time. He just couldn't get it to lock in, and so they spent some time circling the field while, um, while they tried to make this happen and also while the people on the ground were, you know, putting out emergency vehicles, foam, all this stuff that they do to prepare for a crash landing. And uh, at the, in the last minutes before they decided that it was ready and they could go ahead and make a belly landing or whatever, um, the pilot got on the um, intercom and he said, It is my obligation to inform you that we are making our final descent. And at this moment, in accordance with the avi- international aviation codes established in Geneva, to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence prayer. <laughs> so, 
that's how most people go about coming to prayer. Anyway, I know Chuck is so funny, and Jim told me, he goes, try to inject a little humor in your talk this time. I said, I'm not funny, so I had to borrow some. Um, Anyway, um, I'm going to submit that the role of prayer is to bring us peace. In the Bible, it says in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Present your requests to God, and let uh, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The other thing, and Steve talked about this a little while ago, he had at the top and bottom of one of his slides, um, to adopt the mind of Christ and to discern God's will. So... As I understand it, the only way we can do that is by reading Scripture and through prayer. Um, Prayer is not really for us to change God's mind and have Him do what we want, how we want it, when we want it, but rather by spending time in prayer, we're going to, you know, get His mind. Uh, So let me go to that slide. The verses uh, that would coincide with this would be, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And in Colossians 3, 2, it says, Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. The five principles that I'll expound on as we go forward are that God's grace provides for prayer. Prayer is a divine command. There's not a wrong time, wrong place, wrong way to pray. Effective prayer can and should be learned and applied. And prayer is evidence that we trust in God. And um, I think that will go kind of coincide with what Dale was talking about a while ago. You know, any of our fears, our anger, anything that's expressing that we have lack of trust in God, we can use prayer uh, to help us with that. So, uh, God's grace provides for prayer. We can look biblically that at uh, the time of Jesus' death, it says, And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And in Hebrews 10, 19-22, it says again, Now we have confidence to enter the most highly placed by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, which was his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that God um, provides. Um, That just overwhelms me to think that God cared so much about us being able to come directly to him instead of through some imperfect human priest or some animal bloody sacrifice that had to be done over and over again. He provided a way that we can come right to him. So he provides. You know, his grace has provided for that. The other thing that I think is neat about um, how he makes provision for us through prayer is that sometimes when we are so upset by the situations that we have in our home, in our, that we see in the world around us, whatever, but particularly for this class, what we see in the, the chaos in our own homes, we are so angry, so bitter, so uh, consumed with guilt or whatever, which sometimes we don't even know what to pray. But it says in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit helps our weakness For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The next principle, number two, prayer is a divine command. Um, God commands us to pray. He talked to his disciples and he told them three times in Matthew 6, and when you pray. So it's it's a command, really, if we're a disciple of his. And... um, 
I looked through at some other verses about prayer in Colossians 4 to devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. I rejoice always in 1 Thessalonians. Pray without ceasing and in everything give thanks. Philippians, the one we read before, do not be anxious about every, anything but in every situation. And it talks about thanksgiving again. And um, I don't think that, that we're thanking God for our unhappiness, our disarray, or whatever, but we're really acknowledging His goodness and His sovereignty in our situation and realizing that He's going to put, some, he's put something in our life and He's wanting to teach us something with that. So our first response, ideally, would be, what are you trying to teach me? And I think Jay kind of talked about that a minute ago when he was talking about conflict resolution. Okay, I can act like a jerk in this situation and my witness goes to pot. Or I can look at this as a chance to glorify God and, um, you know, who knows what that witness to uh, to others will bring. Um, God really likes to be in communion with us. And it says in Jeremiah 33, 3, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Uh, Steve found this for me. There's not a wrong place, a wrong time, or a wrong way to to pray. I think the picture kind of speaks for itself. Um, Aren't those kids cute? Just look at their faces. So I can see it better up there than I could on my computer. Um, Todd, the pastor here at Watermark. Does everybody here go to Watermark? Most. Well, Todd Wagner's our pastor. Anyway, he gave us a message some time ago about Jonah. And um, when we think that we have to get all acceptable and get cleaned up and presentable and uh, whatever to come to God, he made the point that if Jonah had waited to get all cleaned up to ask for help, he would have never gotten out of that fish. It says in Jonah 2.1, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And, of course, uh, most of us know the Psalms and David, how he um, talks to God there to save him from his... Uh, problems and he says, "Hear me and answer me." In Psalm fifty-five, one through two, my thoughts trouble me, and I am distraught. Short verses like that, unless I take a lot of time to meditate on them, I just kind of breeze past. But I decided to look up the definitions to um, those two words, troubled and distraught. And I think most of us in this room, based on what I've heard today, have felt these things. Troubled means uh, my thoughts are troubling me. They're disturbed, they're grieved, they're afflicted, they're agitated, they're uneasy. And then it says, and I'm distraught. I'm in disorder, perplexed, confused, perturbed, harassed. And so I'm just suggesting that, not suggesting, I'm saying the Bible says that we should turn to God as David did. Um, He was running from Saul, someone that he loved and had given his life to help and be a part of. And and that man was chasing him and trying to kill him. And so how tumultuous and perplexing must that situation have been to him. Um, And then um, Jesus told his disciples, you know, that they should always pray and not give up. So I would encourage you not to do that. We had a a couple come and speak to our prodigal group just a few weeks ago, and they had a situation where their daughter, prodigal, um, drinking, rebelling, and by the age of 14 had had twins. (laughs) And um, just the turmoil that that caused. And they had raised this child from birth to be a a believer and, and BSF and church, Sunday school. I mean, she knew the Bible, and um, 
So she definitely was a prodigal walking away from that. But the mom just kept praying scripture. You know, sometimes we don't know exactly what to pray. And I think if we just find scriptures, we even have a book on Tuesday nights. If y'all come, you get it. It says, you know, praying God's will for your son or your daughter. And it's just taking scripture and praying it back to him. Because you can't mess up if you're praying, you know, quote, mess up. You can't. You know, you'll know what to say if you just pray his word back. But they, that child... In the end, uh, turned back to God. She married a seminary, uh, seminary stu- a Dallas Theological Seminary student. They had their wedding, and those twins were like the ring bearers in their wedding. It's like God redeemed all that he allowed in their life. So be consistent and don't ever give up. That was her message, and it's really my message too. Um, prayer can and should be learned um, uh, and learned. I, I intend for that point to be this we grow in the knowledge of the, of the Lord Jesus and 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 God's redemptive plan um, we'll learn more how to pray in accordance with his will is what I mean by that but it says in James 5:16 the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective a righteous person is one who's clothed in the atoning blood of Jesus as I think we all know and he is someone who is fleeing sin and Moving towards a virtuous life of patience, peace, love, joy, um, gentleness, kindness. It's that person that's moving that way if we were to look at them from a human standpoint. Um, You can use the Lord's Prayer. I did that for many years. I would like, okay, how should I pray? You know, I'm on a walk and I'm thinking about the things I want to pray about. And I find myself asking God for stuff. And I'm like, okay, this isn't right. And so I'll use the Lord's Prayer, you know. And I'll take verses, you know, and hallowed be His name. And I'll think of ways that I can praise Him for His goodness and His faithfulness and His mercy. And that way you take the Lord's Prayer and just kind of make it your own. Another way is you can use the acronym ACTS. To acknowledge, to confess, to be thankful, and then do your supplication or your petitions to him. Um, My husband ties his prayers to a certain time of day, like when he's driving into work. It's quiet unless I'm in the car with him. (laughs) And I've learned now, if he doesn't talk, he's not mad at me. It just means he's praying. So, (laughs) Anyway, uh, me personally, I try to pray all day long. That's just kind of been an evolution in my life. Uh, I had a BSF teacher one day that said she's praying constantly, even when she's talking. It's like there's another train of thought. And women, we're pretty good at that, you know, multitasking. And there's another train of thought going up here, and she's praying. And so I've, I use that as an encouragement in my own life to do that. Um, but um, I don't do so good with distractions. So if I'm really wanting to pray concertedly or whatever, I have to go for a walk where I can't see stuff in the kitchen that needs to be done or I can't be at work or I'm having to, you know, worry with patients or whatever. Um, let's see. Next principle is prayer is evidence of our trust in God. Um, Back in Psalms, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and He helps me. In Zechariah 4, 6-9, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. John 15, 5, if you remain in me, I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. When we pray, we're acknowledging that we're dependent upon God and that He is powerful. We're acknowledging that He's powerful enough to accomplish what we ask. Um, 
I use the word plead. I personally do plead with God often when um, when there's situations of dire need. Uh, most recently, we had that I can think of where I was constantly just bringing something to God and pleading. It was a friend of ours who was wrongly accused by the federal government of something, and it just was destroying his his practice, his life, his you know everything and it was a wrongful accusation but when you're up against the federal government it can be pretty you know uh, it can be pretty harsh and so I can remember pleading for God you know just show yourself to be strong just let many many people see that your hand is at work here and to hear how I wasn't there but to hear how he worked in the trial and the different people that saw him working you know and knew that these people acknowledged him it was just such a praise to the Lord so um, and I found this verse just this week Ezekiel 36 37 or I refound it I guess we studied it in a journey recently but it says this is what the sovereign Lord says Once again, I will yield to the plea of the house of Israel, and I will do this for them. So, you you know, plead with God. Cry cry out to Him. Um, Ruth Graham told her daughter, Ann Graham, that's Billy Graham's wife and and daughter, um, if there are any tears shed in heaven, they're going to be shed over all the answers to prayer for which no one bothered to ask. And that's where that Luke eleven nine I think, says it all. So I say to you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Trust. Trust that he hears our prayers. So, um, those five principles that we've just gone through. And I think we've expounded on those plenty. Uh, one thing that uh, Todd... Our pastor had a sermon in uh, April of 2011, and this is in your handout. Uh, it's called Confusion to Crisis to Clarity to Completion. And in it, one of his comments was that um, the best thing you can do in times of suffering and chaos is lean into the Lord. You know, don't become angry, as we said earlier. Don't be angry at God. Um, because the Lord is seeking to have one of two things happen. He's desiring to take someone who's far from God and draw that person to himself. Or else he's taking someone that's near to him and wanting their response and drawing close to him to draw others closer to him. So as difficult as our chaos and our suffering is, trust in the Lord, lean into him, and uh, it's time-related. So thank you. I don't think he means it. <laughs> he probably just didn't want to get his banking. <laughs> I really do take care of the pool here at Watermark. Uh, so. Um, I was not jesting. That's why it looks so good. Guys, I want to share with you some things that I believe as I was prepping for this and I was thinking about you, didn't know what you look like, but I was thinking about you, that the things we're going to talk about in the next 15 minutes will absolutely change uh, your heart and you'll walk out of here with some burdens lifted and some uh, real truth that will help you from this point forward. I want to talk about why we forgive. Why we forgive, guys. Parenting a prodigal, 
child or having a parent that is her parents that have gone off the ranch. It is a painful process. Absolutely painful. You know, it's not a job that anybody lines up and applies for, but it's where we're at. It's where we're at. We never think about it when our little little babies are just born and we're cuddling them in our arms, all seven pounds of them, or in my case, ten pounds, fifteen and a half ounces. Yeah, I'm still fragile and petite. In fact, you call me down the hallway and say, hey, fragile, hey, petite, I'll answer. I'll answer. We love our children. We love our parents. But there are times we don't like them very much. They lie. They, they are deceptive. They manipulate. They steal. Those are the things they do. Uh, they say hurtful things. In fact, some of the things that our, our children, even our parents can say, are absolutely, they feel like it's, it's from the pit of hell. They cut that deep. You know, why do our parents say these things? They didn't teach us to act this way, but now they're acting this way, and they've lost their cred, and now we have to deal with some of their their baggage. We never thought it would be that way, but that's the way it is, and we need to learn. We need to forgive them. We need to forgive our prodigals. We need to forgive our parents. We need to forgive because... um, if we don't, there's going to be problems. If we don't, unresolved sin, unforgiveness, affects us emotionally and spiritually. It will affect us emotionally and spiritually. We will become emotionally retarded if we choose not to forgive. If we harbor resentment, if we keep that bitterness uh, inside and we don't deal with it, we will become retarded emotionally. When I was going through a a divorce a couple of years ago, uh, I rallied men around me. And in my state of despair, not trusting what I was thinking, what I was doing, uh, the guy that was leading the group looked at me and said, Jim, you're an emotional 16-year-old. And he was exactly right. He was exactly right. That's where I I was. Um, you know, Proverbs 18.1 is a verse that we have embraced uh, as a prodigal ministry. It describes our children. It, it can describe our parents. Uh, it's not in your notes. 18.1. He who separates himself seeks his own desires. He quarrels against sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Does that not describe your situation? It does. If we don't resolve conflict, if we don't deal with these people in our, in our lives that are self-focused, guys, uh, we, will, we will be retarded. If we don't resolve sin, we need to realize that sin, especially unresolved sin, is always buried alive. Somewhere down the line, you may push it down, uh, it will pop its head up, and we will have to deal with it sooner or later. Uh, in a book... True faced, he has a great quote. It says this When one act of sin remains unresolved, it causes a nagging sense in the heart that does not go away. Like plaque, cholesterol, or, or unopened email, unresolved sin builds up. That is true. Guys, if we choose not to deal with these things, we will isolate. You know, people will come into our lives and say, Hey, man, how's it going? How are you doing today? How's your week been? And if we isolate, we will say, Oh, things are what? Fine. Great. Super. 
but inside we're shriveling up. And after a part, after an extended period of time, because of the pain, because of the hurt, we will deal with that pain and that hurt as best we can. We will choose to uh, isolate from our significant others. We will choose to maybe drink a little bit more than we normally do. We will choose to stay at the office a little bit longer and not go home where we're going to experience this conflict. We will choose to have an affair or we will have an emotional affair. Uh, We will make poor choices because we just want to feel better. That's why you're here today. I just want to feel better. I want to deal with this situation. I want to resolve it, isn't it? We want to feel better. So that's why forgiveness is such a huge huge issue so I want to deal with three reasons why we forgive Uh, number one we forgive because of our desperate need of personal forgiveness Um, you know it's easy it's easy to forgive our prodigal our parents if they come to us in our mind they haven't done it yet they come to us and they say you know please forgive me I'm sorry Wow, that would be the day. Uh, I've wronged you. Well, obviously, I will forgive you. But how do we do that? How do we forgive when um, they are unrepentant? They do not change. They continue their hurtful ways. But you know what? To be healthy as individuals, you must forgive them for hurt done. Or possibly even forgive yourself for hurt you may have done to them. Okay? Both... Uh, aspects of forgiveness need to be there. You forgiving them and you forgiving yourself. Don't let your situation with your prodigal or with your parents take your eyes off what God wants to do with you. Okay? Don't let it take your eyes off what God wants to do with you. There's no hiding from our own personal sin as much we would as much as we would like to focus on that person that's inflicting pain. We need to turn inward and deal with our own issues. Jeremiah 17.9 Great passage. The heart is more deceitful than all else. Who can understand it? The next verse, the Lord says, I understand it. He says, I search the heart. I test the mind. I even give, I give to uh, each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. There's a passage that came to my mind. It's not in your notes, but it's Mark 6.15. We have to forgive. Mark 6.15, this passage says, But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not what? Forgive you. If you do not forgive others, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Now that's not saying that if you don't forgive, you're going to hell. That's not what that passage is saying. What that passage is saying is, if we do not deal with our issues of forgiveness with our prodigals or our parents, then our relationship with God is hindered. There will be a barrier there. And you wonder why, you know, I just don't feel like my prayers are being answered. I really feel like I'm, I'm, when I pray or I get into the Scriptures, I feel like I'm in a box and there's nothing happening. There's nothing getting in and it feels like there's nothing going out. It's because there's probably some unresolved issues of forgiveness that you need to deal with. Um, when I was in grad school, I had a business. Uh, and I was in partnership with, my, uh, with a guy. That was a classmate of mine, actually. And uh, I officed out of my home. The business was run out of my home. My wife was kind of the, the administrator. She made decisions, stuff like that. So he was in and out of my home quite a bit. But one particular day, he made a pass at my wife. I found about, out about this a little bit later. 
And she didn't tell me because she thought I would kill him, which might not have been too far. I might have hurt him real bad. I don't know that I would have killed him. But as a result of that conflict, uh, I bought him out, and I uh, severed the relationship. And part of the agreement in buying him out was I would pay him his part of the business on four uh, equal payments. I paid him the first payment, no problem. I paid him the second payment. I paid him the third payment. But when it came to that last payment, I put it in an envelope, and I stuck it in my freezer. And I said to myself, it's going to be a cold day when he gets this check. And for two years, that check stayed in my freezer. I didn't realize how it impacted me, my not dealing with that issue. But I was sitting across a friend of mine. Uh, at a, I was having lunch with him. In fact, he was my old youth pastor. He had moved to Dallas. And so I was just having lunch with him, getting him caught up on things. And so I was telling him about this situation. And I was just in the midst of telling him and just talking about it. And all of a sudden, his eyes got real big. And he kind of pushed away from the table a little bit. And I said, what's wrong? And he said, man, uh, you're angry, aren't you? I said, no, I'm not angry. He said, yes, you are. Your face just changed shapes. He said, you're angry. And I realized at that particular moment that I had an issue that I needed to resolve. I mean, I was in the pastorate. I was pastoring a church, and I had this check in the freezer, and I was an angry man. I had unresolved conflict. And so uh, I wrote him a letter, asked for forgiveness, and uh, sent it to him, and uh, extended forgiveness, and also asked for it. So we forgive because we are in desperate forgiveness uh, ourselves. I'm thankful that uh, that we have received mercy and grace, that that mercy and grace is extended to us rather than justice. If we got what we deserved, woe be unto us. But we forgive because we are desperate in need of personal forgiveness. Titus 3, um, 4 and 5, 3, 4 and 5, a great passage. It says, For we were once also foolish ourselves. This is the Apostle Paul talking. We were once also foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Uh, That describes us. That's why we need to be forgiven. But then he shifts gears and he talks about what God has done for us. He says, but when the kindness of God appears... Uh, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of works that, of righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's, it's fascinating in this verse that every facet of the Holy Trinity is involved in our forgiveness. God the Father, the Son, who is described as His love for mankind, Uh, the kindness of God our Savior, and the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and renews us. Every person in the Holy Trinity is involved in your and my forgiveness in dealing with our issues. We must forgive. I mean, how many times have we said... uh, to our kids, thinking, looking at our prodigals, and say, "You know what? I hope you had a child. You have a child just like you when you grow up." The funny thing is, that's what your parents prayed about you when you were growing up, and uh, it happened, didn't it? So, 
Guys, my point is, how can we not forgive when so much has been forgiven us? We hold on to these things, hurtful things that are said, uh, behavior that our children have done that embarrasses us or shames us. We hold on to it. But how can we not forgive when so much has been forgiven us? It's so important that we, we take that uh, log out of our own eye before we deal with the speck in someone else's, guys. God forgave us not on the basis of our works, so why should we withhold forgiveness toward our prodigal or our parents because of their works? Secondly, guys, we forgive because we are made in the image of God. And I want you to bear with me on this. This is a, something that I've really uh, wrestled with. Because it's part of uh, the last couple, two and a half years since my divorce, I've really wrestled with the idea or the concept of how does a man change? How does a woman change? Forgiveness is a huge part of it. So I want to talk, work you through just the uh, kind of a systematic theology of forgiveness. First off, forgiveness is part of the character of God. Nehemiah 9.17 But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And did not forsake them. Great truth about the character of God. Secondly, God forgave us even while we were in sin. It's part of God's character to forgive. He forgave us even while we were still sinners. He didn't forgive us after we turned and moved toward Him. He forgave us even when we had our backs to Him and we were running directly opposed to Him and away from Him. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, which was hostile toward us, or consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile toward us. He has taken them out of the way. He has nailed them to the cross. When we were dead in our transgressions, that's what He did for us. Because it flows from the character of God. He is a forgiving God. He made a provision for us. Thirdly, forgiveness is part of God's expectation of us. Matthew 18, 21-22. Uh, Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You know, the, the historical facts behind that statement is pretty cool. You know, the standard operating procedure of the day was uh, in the religious, in the temple, was that you forgive somebody three times, and after that, you know, um, you don't have to. So I guess Peter decided to double it and add one. So he came up with the number seven, up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Basically, you're expected to forgive every time. Every time we forgive. Fourthly, forgiveness does not mean uh, the removal of consequences. Guys, absolutely crucial truth. Forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequences. You can forgive your prodigal. You can forgive your parents. But still enforce the consequences of bad behavior. A great passage, Ezekiel 34. This one, if I was able to go back in Old Testament history and be at one point in time just to watch, this would be it. God comes to Moses on the mountain when he was given the, been given the tablets of the law. Uh, right before this verse, it says, And the Lord descended 
from heaven and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Can you imagine God standing right there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord? And the Lord passed in front of him, it says, and declares, this is what he declared, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, that's thousands of generations, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Stop there. I can see Moses saying, Yea, God, you forgive me. But then God goes on in his declaration of who he is. He says, Yet I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished, visiting the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And Moses made haste, and you can't see it, made haste to bow to the earth and worship. I'm convinced that Moses didn't have the inclination to worship until God said, you know what, I'm going to show you the good side of my holiness, but also I want to show you the implication of my holiness. Say, you know what, there is forgiveness, but yet consequences are there. Yet I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. It's one thing to forgive. It's another thing to ignore the consequences. This verse came up recently in uh, my situation with my children. And uh, my wife says that's old covenant, old covenant theology. Doesn't apply in the new covenant. The idea of God, uh, you know, generational. In this, what we refer to as generational sin? Uh, or is that something different from this? No, it's something different. You know, I understand the question. The question is, uh, this truth is more uh, covenantal or dispensational, that the Old Testament, the revelations of, of God or these principles are more for the Jews in the Old Testament. And in the New Covenant, God is a forgiving God. He's a gracious God and compassionate God. The response to that is, what we have in the Old Testament is, and that's true, a lot of the truths, a good example of this, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, uh, plans to prosper, not of calamity, uh, a, pl- uh, a future, a plan for a future, and a hope. You can look further in that passage, and it talks about what God's going to do for the nation of Israel. He's going to bring them back to their land, He's going to, and He gives them specifics. So that verse is a principle that reveals the character of God. And though that verse is not necessarily a promise to you and I, it reveals the essence of the character of God. And that's what we plead to. I mean, that's how we pray, isn't it? Oh God, we, we, we beg because of who you are, that you are gracious, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. That wasn't God just to Israel. That's the nature of God. And so that's what we plead. And so we have to take... The good with the bad. Yet I I will not allow uh, um, the guilty to go unpunished. I mean, that's just part of the character of God. There is forgiveness, but there are also consequences. There is forgiveness. We must forgive for our own emotional and spiritual health, but there are also consequences. That's just part of the character of God. So, good question. Um, All right. Well, I'm going to out of time. I'm going to keep going. God is, I believe, God is woven uh, 
forgiveness into the fabric of our being. The need to be forgiven and the power to extend it. I believe forgiveness is part of how we, in our relationship with God, in our day-in and day-out relationships, forgiveness is a key uh, component. It's like uh, plants. They need sunshine. They need water. If you take one of those elements out of their existence, they will die. Uh, in our relationships with God, in our relationship with people, if we choose not to forgive, if we remove that component for, from our life, we become an unforgiving parent, or we become an unforgiving uh, child to, toward our parents or toward our siblings, we will shrivel up and die. Uh, it will retard us emotionally and spiritually. All right? All right. Lastly, th- thirdly, why we forgive? We forgive because we are commanded to, not because we feel like it. We forgive because we're commanded to, not because we feel like it. Colossians uh, 3, 12 and 13. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. And I love how this verse ends up. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. That truth should rattle around in our head and our heart. Non-stop. Just as the Lord forgave you and me, so also should we forgive those around us that have hurt us, that cause pain. We forgive them. We don't wait for them to turn toward us and move toward us and are, and are repentant. We forgive them ahead of time. And we let it go. And it's already been shared already. We let we get out of the way. We stop enabling and we allow God to take over control of their, uh, the curriculum of their life, of them getting their life together. Let God do it, and that's not our responsibility. Okay, how do we do it? Very simply, uh, here's the process. Uh, four aspects of this. Um, first off, we have to embrace the truth. And, and you notice on this little list, feelings are the last thing that show up, even if they show up at all, feeling like forgiving. So the first thing you do is you embrace the truth that I must forgive. Whatever face is in your head today, or faces, that person that's causing pain, uh, you must forgive. You're commanded to forgive. It flows from the character of God. It's part of who He is. It's what He expects from us. Everything we've talked about. I must forgive. Secondly, you believe. You have to believe. uh, Because of the forgiveness extended to, to me personally, by God, I can extend it to others. You believe that you can do that. Thirdly, you have to act. You have to tell them you forgive them. Tell yourself you forgive them. And I might add, tell yourself that you forgive, uh, that you have to forgive you for the things that you may have done. You have to tell yourself that. Self-talk. I mean, that's psychobabble, but that's, in all reality, you have to tell yourself that many times, over and over. I forgive. I know Christ has forgiven me, so I need to forgive myself. Okay, and then lastly, you feel it. You f- feeling forgiveness in your heart may come later down the road if it comes at all. You may never feel like uh, you really do forgive that person, but you do it. It's a conscious choice that you make. All right, guys. Principles. Forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequences. Remember that. Forgiveness does not mean the removal of consequences. There are consequences for bad behavior. Enforce them. Secondly, stop waiting till you feel like forgiving. It'll uh, stop waiting till you feel like forgiving. God didn't wait 
We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and He forgave us. He didn't wait. Thirdly, rejoice daily that God has forgiven you so you can be a person that extends forgiveness to others. It's part of the fabric of our spiritual DNA that we extend forgiveness to others, that we forgive ourselves for the sins that we've done. And it makes us gracious people. And it makes us people that uh, other people want to be around. And quite frankly, it'll make us people that our children will want to be around. All right. Questions? Let's uh, think back. There may be no questions. We're out of time, so who's up? (laughs) We are going to do questions at the end. We've allowed some extended time. I just went a little bit long-winded. Got to preaching. Okay, um, this is a tough one. Um, this little, for the next few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about laying your Isaac down. And some other titles we could call this would be like letting go, living a life of faith, trusting God fully, getting rid of idolatry. Ouch. Um, um, okay, just to recap a little bit, we all know the story of Abraham and Isaac, but just to recap for somebody that might need a little refresher, um, Abraham and God kind of had a covenant. And Abraham's deal was he was going to obey God. And God was going to give Abraham many, many descendants and make him a, a great nation, make him into a great nation with all of his descendants. So um, uh, Abraham and Sarah could not have children. Um, they were very old when they had children. But anyway, in Hebrews 11 8, we, we hear that. Uh, I mean, in Genesis 12, we hear that God told Abraham, all of a sudden, he just said, go. He said, go. And so in Hebrews 11:8, we see that Abraham just went. He didn't know where he was going. God said, go, and he, he went. Even though he didn't know where he was going, just because he trusted God so much, he was so faithful. Um, uh, and God said, uh, and Abraham believed the covenant that God would make him, his descendants as numerous as the stars. He believed in God's provision. Remember when Abraham and Lot were looking at the land and God said they were going to have to divide the land because they had too much stuff. And Abraham trusted God so much that he said, you know, told Lot just to take what he wanted, that God would provide for him, you know, even though he didn't get the, maybe the property that could you know, have the crops and all that. So he showed his immense trust for God. Um, And then God gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90. Well, I don't know about y'all, but I... Yeah. Wow. It really happened. Yeah, wow. I... uh, we had trouble having babies. Jay may have said that. But after losing two mid-trimester babies and just... All I ever wanted was to be a mom. You know, that was my greatest desire. And when I was little, I thought, I want six kids. And, and you know, God just, it, it didn't come easy for us. And um, so when you've waited that long for a child, wow. You know, you want to hold on so tight to that baby and that child that you're just so afraid, you know, that anything could happen to that baby because, I mean, it just wasn't easy. You know, some people can pop them out like nothing, but it just wasn't that way for us. So... Um, anyway, in Genesis 22, we, we go on, and all of a sudden, God asks Abraham a really tough thing. 
he, uh, here, here Abraham had this son that he loved. I mean, just loved so much. And Isaac was sure, I'm sure, a really good kid. So God said, God asked Abraham, he told him to go, to take Isaac and go up on a mountain and sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. Wow. I don't know about you, but if that's what it takes to be called faithful, I'm going to step aside, I think, and let somebody else be faithful. That's tough. But you know what? Abraham was so faithful. And what does he do? He gets the wood and he gets in the whatever, the horse, whatever he takes. And he takes a couple of men with him. He goes up to the mountain with Isaac. Isaac even says to his dad, he said, he said, where's the lamb? Dad, you know, where's the lamb? We're going to do a burnt offering. And you know what um, Abraham says to him? He says, God will provide. That's faith. And, and, you know, I don't think Abraham said that to him just to keep him from bugging him about it and just so he wouldn't be afraid. I think Abraham knew that God, that he served, that he was going to make a way. I mean, beyond anything he could understand. He didn't know how. But he knew that God was going to provide a way of escape. That's an amazing level of letting go. That's amazing to me. So, anyway... What we see is that Abraham totally surrendered. He obeyed immediately. He didn't think about it. He didn't say, i got to think about this, God. This is kind of weird. He just went, just like he did before. Immediate surrender. And he trusted because he told the men with him when he went up on the mountain, he said, we will return. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but he knew he would because he knew his God. Um, so what does he do? He, put, he binds up Isaac and he puts him on the altar. And he's ready to put the sword down on him. And what does God do? He rescues Isaac at the last possible moment. Wow. And he said, and an angel of the Lord came to Abraham and said, you know, don't do this. Don't. Because you have just shown me that you fear me because you've not withheld from me your son. So God was saying, you've made your son an idol. You know, I had to know that you loved me more, that you trusted me, and that you were faithful to me, that you were willing to sacrifice your son. He didn't ask him to. So what happens then? We see a um, a uh, ram in the thicket, the years of ram in the thicket. God provided a substitutionary sacrifice there. So Abraham passed the test. I'm not sure I would have passed the test, but Abraham passed the test. He showed that he trusted God fully to provide for him. He didn't ask the mom to take Totally. <laughs> Good point. He had. He didn't ask Sarah to do it. He said Abraham to do it. Good point. I have. Yeah, that goes along with my story. I'm going to tell you in a minute. Um, he showed that he loved God above everything else, even his own son. Now, can we say that? I mean, we love our children a lot. I mean, especially, you know, when we it hasn't come easy, and we've. You know, we had it wasn't easy having them. God's response was, again, he provided a way out. He gave him a substitutionary sacrifice. And then he kept his promise. He kept his promise because he blessed Abraham with a great nation. So why did God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? Well, we kind of already talked about that. But um, he forced him to choose because anything that we choose or we prioritize above God is an idol. Somebody talked about it earlier. It might be money. It might be our home, our car, our children, our families. Um, materialism, whatever it is, if we put it before God and it is more important to us and, and God knows our hearts, then it's an idol. And we know 
We know what God, how God feels about that. Sometimes you don't know it is an idol and you don't know you have an addiction to something until you have, you're asked to give it up. Um, and we can see that sometimes in our prodigal situations. Um, we we kind of get addicted to the chaos. We kind of get addicted to the way we feel. And, and sometimes that's not a good feeling. But until we're asked to give it up, we don't know that how hard it is to give it up. And you ask someone, you know, these kids that smoke, and they and you say they say, I just do it every once in a while. I can quit if I want to. Well, I ask them to try. It's not always easy. Um, God wanted Abraham's full devotion to him above everything else. And his choice was going to show God, as well as Abraham, where his motives truly were. So why did he ask him? God needed to know that the man that he was going to make be the father of a great nation would have no hindrances with idols. Not only for God's sake, but for Abraham's sake. One thing we tell our prodigal families is until you can't lead your prodigal well. You can't take care of it, even if it is a parent or a spouse, until you, you're leading yourself well. He had to know that Abraham was leading himself well. And in that, knowing that God was his first priority. Then he couldn't be the leader of a great nation until God knew that. God wouldn't trust him with that. So he did it for Abraham's sake as well as his own. And um, we just talked about that. You had, nothing can be between you and God for you to lead your family well or to lead your prodigal situation well. So how do you do that? How do we give our, our prodigal child, our prodigal parent, our prodigal spouse, how do we give them to God? You know, it sounds sounds like easy. It's not easy, is it? First, you've got to know God and you've got to trust Him. How do we know God? We know His character. We just talked about that by studying His Word. Um, you can trust an unknown future to a known God. We don't know what's going to happen with our prodigals in our lives, but we do know God. And we can trust their future to a God that we know because He is faithful and He is sovereign and He is trustworthy. Um, You've got to know God to give them up because, I mean, you, you're not going to leave your kids with a babysitter that you don't know. You're not going to give your kids to a God that you don't know and you don't trust. You've got to know Him. Um, also, our, our prodigals in our lives already belong to Him anyway. You know, doesn't it tell us in Matthew that He knows the number of hairs on their heads and the number of their days. I mean, they belong to him anyway. So the bottom line is, I'm going to turn my pages over. Oh, you know what? There's one thing I wanted to talk about here that was kind of important. Um, why God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In our situation, uh, there was a point in our, in our journey with our prodigal where, um, you know, we had kind of an awakening. It's when Jay finally you know, had community around us, and he said, you know what, I'm going to stop enabling. I'm going to, as he called it, you know, he, you've heard him say several times, it took him out of the game. That means, you know, he wasn't serving, he wasn't worshiping. We were consumed with our situation, with our prodigal situation and the chaos. And finally, when he came to that point, he said to our prodigal, he said, you know, I need to ask your forgiveness because I haven't parented you well. I have not let you, let you suffer consequences. I have enabled you, and I haven't loved you the way I should. I haven't led you well. And he said, but from now on, I'm going to do that. And he said, um, I just lost my train of thought. He said, if, you, if something happens to you because of the poor decisions you're making, should you have a drug overdose, should you die, should you go to prison you know, for stealing or something, I will grieve that loss. I will grieve that. But you know what? It's not going to take me out of the game. 
I'm going to continue to do what I was put here to do. And what is our purpose in life anyway? To glorify God. He said, I'm going to continue to do what God wants me to do, and that is to worship Him, serve Him, and glorify Him. And, and from that point on, our prodigal knew where he stood with God, that we weren't going to let his situation come between us and our relationship with God. And that was a turning point for us. It was a really letting go, and it was when our prodigal kind of realized that, you know, we weren't going to be there to support his poor decisions anymore. Um, Proverbs 3, 5, we've already said it before and here today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Um, Jeremiah seventeen seven. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in Him. And then we know the Philippians 4, 7, don't be anxious about anything. Joshua 1, 5, He will never leave us or forsake us. Um, we also know that a lack of trust leads to stress. I mean, I'm a perfect example of that. When we don't trust, and we're, again, we're trying to control, we're trying to fix, we're making an idol of our situation. We're stressed out. I mean, it happened to the Israelites in the desert. They were a mess. They were totally lacking trust, and they were just totally messed up. Um, so we, it, it will, stress and worry in our life communicates that it's okay to sin and to not trust God because the stuff in my life is somehow exceptional. Really? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about here is um, <laughs> with our another little situation we had, our daughter, who's not our prodigal, but she's kind of, she's a great girl, but she's kind of going through some questioning right now, and she's just not real happy with her life right now. And a little something happened last night where Jay talked to her, and she's just struggling right now. And you know that saying that you're only as happy as your least happy child? Well, I've said that before, and... Last night after, you know, she wasn't happy, then I kind of wasn't happy. And Jay said something to me, and I, I kind of had to think about that. I thought, here I am. I'm going to talk to these people tomorrow about trusting God and laying your Isaac down. And I'm feeling sad and, and unhappy because of the way my child's feeling. And I, I really had to examine that. And I, I had to say to myself, no. You know, I can't. I, I am going to lay this down, and I'm going to. I'm going to trust God with her, and I'm not going to let that interfere with my joy that I have because of Him. And that that just happened last night, but but it well, only because I was going to tell you this, and it just hit me that I had to lay that down, and my fretting and my worrying was sin. So. Um, A lack of trust leads to stress. I was there. Um, I tried to do it my own way. Apart from God, we can't do anything. We are the, He's the vine, we're the branches. Um, this is a great quote from Francis Chan. I don't know if y'all have read the book Crazy Love. But this is a great ch- quote. Worry implies that we don't quite trust that God's big enough, powerful enough, or loving enough to take care of what's happening in our lives. Both worry and stress reek of arrogance. Ouch. They declare our tendency to forget that we've been forgiven, that our lives here are brief, that we're headed to a place where we won't be lonely, afraid, or hurt ever again. In the context of God's strength, our problems are indeed small. But they seem so big to us. But in the grand scheme of things, God is in control. So um, why is it important to lay my Isaac down? Well, it's the single most important factor in restoring your relationship with both God and your prodigal situation. Um, it's the single most important factor in being able to move forward with uh, a 
parent or a child love them well with the freedom you need to provide the optimum recovery environment. Um, you can't have idols and, and have that between your relationship with God and expect for that prodigal to come home. Um, God feels strongly about idolatry. Um, Deuteronomy 5, 8, 9, you shouldn't make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You should not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. He is a jealous God. Um, um, sorry. Again, we talked about how, you know, after when the angel of the Lord came down to Abraham, there was a ram in the thicket. For him, God provided that. You know, God's faithful. There may not always be a ram in the thicket for you. There may not. But God's still faithful. And you just need to know that. We have to tell our prodigal parents, you know, so many times we're, you know, we're, we're trying to counsel them that you've got to stop giving. You've got to maybe kick your kid out of the house. You've got to do these things. And we can't promise you that your child may not do something. He may kill himself. That's what these kids usually do, usually if they're on drugs or even a parent, they'll they'll threaten to kill themselves. And that's a way to hold you hostage, you know, to say, if you do that to me, it is going to be your fault. Um, we can't promise they won't do that, but we can promise that God's faithful, you know, no matter what happens. Um, but we, we do say that there is hope. There's always hope. Um, there's also a great quote here. Um, wait a minute, I'm so sorry. Okay, uh, this is a great quote from um, Tim Keller in Counterfeit Gods. Um, it says that God's extremely rough t- treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham, but he wasn't safe to have and hold until Abraham was willing to put God first. As long as Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God, he couldn't see that his love was becoming idolatrous. Abraham took that journey, and only after that could Abraham love Isaac well and wisely. Wow. He wasn't the parent, the child, the spouse, whatever, that he needed to be until he was, he was able to sacrifice for God and put God first. Um, anyway, uh, another thing I want to tell you is what happens when we, what do we get when we lay our Isaac down? You know what we get? We get peace. And I felt that so strongly. That you get a peace, finally, because you're in turmoil. And once you lay that down and give it to God and trust Him with Him and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you first and I'm going to lay this Isaac down, you get an immediate peace. Um, I will tell you that. So anyway, the principles we learn from this is that God uses the circumstances of our life to grow our faith. He is faithful, faithful and trustworthy. Um, We can't trust God until we know Him intimately. And our worry and controlling behavior is not only counterproductive and harmful, it's just sin, pure and simple sin. Anything we prioritize above God is an idol. So um, just hope that helps. I know it's not an easy thing to do, but you will find peace. Thanks. Oh, sorry. Look at your little handout. Look at the little picture for for just 30 seconds or so while I'm doing that and just kind of describe in your own mind what you see. Uh, The picture in front of you. I'm going to ask you about that later. So just look at that. We're also... uh, How many people have uh, kids in child care? Okay, one. 
We're going to ask you at 11. Okay, that's fine. Well, what we can do is, what we're going to do is, uh, I kind of get a sense of a feeling that um, you'd have some questions about your own specific issues, and some of you may want to do it or you may want to hear about it. You can leave if you want to at 1145. If you have a child, we'd ask you to go get them, and you can come back and we'll answer your questions with your children here for a while. Um, We'll probably cut it off at at noon or something, but if you want to... uh, We'll be glad to answer some questions. I wish we had more time. If you do, if you come on Tuesday nights, we usually have a lecture like this, and you go to a closed group. You can you'll have an hour, hour and fifteen minutes sometimes to discuss your issue each week and hear other people that are struggling through the same things, and it really helps. So, uh, we'd love to get your questions. So, um, wait, did I go? Is this? Oh yeah. So what I'm going to talk about now is the the final talk is called the process, and. Um, uh, it's a talk we give, uh, I'm giving this week uh, in its fullest. This is a little abbreviated, but not much. Uh, I'm giving it this week. It starts our, it starts our whole uh, talk because a lot of people feel like, uh, our, not a lot of people, but some people, uh, I, I fear, feel that our ministry is a bait and switch. You know, they're coming because they want us to fix their prodigal. And then they realize that they really can't fix their prodigal. It's really all about them which is the only thing they can fix. However, the good news is when you fix yourselves, you really put you in a great position for your prodigal to get well. It's all you can do. Um, and this is the point I want to end with in this group, try to figure out where to put it, is that some of you may be frustrated that you wish you had more, that it's not as coherent. We're picking pieces out of our six- or seven-month curriculum to hit the high points. So if you're frustrated and you feel it's schizophrenic, it is. Uh, uh, it gives you a taste. It gives you a taste of what we do, that we can flush out and answer questions over time. It's a process. I can't do it. We can't fix your kid in five minutes. We can't fix you in five minutes. It's a process. So let me explain that to you a little bit. So uh, I'm very upfront about it. And our motivation is First Second uh, Corinthians one six. Uh, if we are distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, uh, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffered. Why are we here on a Saturday, on a beautiful day? It's because it was Psalms one nineteen seventy one says it was good for us to be afflicted, that we might learn your decrees, and in that. Knowing your faithfulness and your goodness, and the and the Second Corinthians one three and four, I could have used it just as well. The the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, has strengthened us so we may comfort you in your troubles. We have a passion. We got blindsided, just like each one of you got blindsided. You realized you were in the middle of a hellacious situation before you even knew what the, what it was, and so. This is what it's all about. We want, to, we want God to say, well done. We love you because He loved us. And we're here to help you. So we want you to have peace and a closer relationship with God and, and Jesus. We want you to have comfort. And we want your prodigal to come home. And this is the best way to do it. So it's hard. There's no quick fix. You can only work on yourself. So um, I think I've... I've talked about these, but I want to talk about one thing, is that the process at its core is about you and what you can control. And this process, does everybody know what a paradigm is? 
Anybody doesn't know what a paradigm is? It's a way you look at a certain situation. It's a way you approach life. So this whole process is about a way to shift your paradigm from fixing your kid to fixing yourself and letting that residual take care of itself. And it's powerful when that happens. So there's a book that I love called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, and it could be Seven Habits of Highly Effective Prodigal Parents or Prodigal Children or whatever. It's by Covey. And what he did is he reviewed in there, he talks about how he reviewed 200 years of success literature. Okay, The first 150 years of our country, all the success literature was about character. It was about integrity. You get success because you have humility and fidelity and modesty and temperance and courage and the golden rule. And those were the basic principles. You've got to be successful by being a good man and a good woman and having character. And it took time. And there were basic principles uh, that were just ingrained in your life that really was what it was about true happiness. And But the last 50 years... All the books that we see now are not about what he called a character ethic. It's about a personality ethic. I changed this in my talk. I had a guy that really likes, like Steve, you know, um, has helped us with regard to, I'm not great at it, but these images, okay, well, um, that goes along with slides. Well, my slide that I give this next Tuesday, my previous one has a picture of Benjamin Franklin. This one has a picture of Oprah. And success is more of a function of personality. It's, it's image and attitudes and it's superficial and it's, it's about behaviors and skills and, but it's, but it's, it's quick fixes and it's, you know, be your, be your best self now. You know, all the things that we've seen when we go through the airports or bookstores and it's just, uh, it's a public relation techniques. You're your own God. You know, and so that's how it's all changed. So let's do let's do this for a second. Uh, have you looked at your picture? Okay, you kind of see something there. Well, I'm gonna I want you to stop looking at that, and I want you to look at this one, and I want you um, to tell me what Kim tell me what you see in this picture. Okay. Does anybody see something else? What do you see? I see an elderly lady with a fur and kind of down with a shawl. Okay, so we got one person that sees a young lady looking to the east, and we've got another lady, look, an older lady with the shawl and everything. How many people see the young person? Raise your hand. Okay. How many see people, the old people, the old person? Okay. Four out of five saw the old. Six out of ten saw that young. You, you saw both. You said, "Okay." Well, the the point of, the point of the experience is we come to a situation and we now now we come to a situation. Do you see the young person at all? Okay. Do you anybody not see the old person? Okay. 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 So my point is okay. So my point is if you're coming okay if you guys are resolving conflict and you're coming to this situation together okay. Are you frustrated that they cannot see the old person or the young person? Okay. Right. So the point is, so what I want you to do is I want you to come up and, and, and show them what you're seeing. 
describe it. Okay. And is it Nancy? Why don't you come up and you can describe the old person. Well, I don't see the old person. You see the young person. Come up and sp- describe the young person. You- Where's her nose and her mouth? Her nose, her mouth, and then she's got like almost like a, a fur over her, and then this is her hair. And, she, you, know, and nice you, come, you come describe, <laughs> and you describe the young person. Okay, well you describe, <laughs> but you describe you describe the young person. Go ahead. It's the profile of this is her face. That's her like jawline. That's her nose. That's her hair and her oh. hair. And that's her fur. That's her okay. Hair. Perfect. It's a profile. Perfect. So the point is, <laughs> the point is, is what is what is truth? They're both there. They're both there. And the point was, is that so the power of a paradigm? I mean, why did you come to the conclusion you came to? It was based on your biases. You each had a long, you each had a, you each had a, look, you each had a, I gave you each a picture that was slightly different. One favored the older profile, one favored the younger profile. So that when you looked at a situation, when you looked at a situation, you came, it's amazing, it's not, it's not, all of you guys here had the older lady, and all you guys had the younger lady. Right. So based on based on how you come to, uh, yeah, it's a great, isn't it? No, I mean it's powerful. So based on how you come to the situation is how you interpret a situation, right? It's how you were born. It's how you were raised. It's 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 all those kind of things. It's it's the conversation you had this morning. Um, it's it's the mood you're in today. So my point is is that I'm just trying to open your mind up that the way you view life may be skewed by your own biases, and you may need to shift paradigms. Okay, so a paradigm definition is a frame of reference or the way we view certain situations in the world. It's a powerful and necessary to advance. You've got to shift things. You say, I would do this. I'll never do this. When my brother was 10 years older than I and they were raising their kids, I said, I will never do that until I had kids, and I did exactly that. It often happens when you face life threatening crisis. Uh, basically, um, I won't read this to you, but um, there is a story in Covey's book that talks about a communication in which the night watchman on a battleship was headed to her and he sees a light in the distance and it says, um, we are battleship 33, you've heard about that, yeah, we are battleship 33, whatever it is, uh, identify yourself and nothing happened. You know, we're a battleship, we're United States military. We're asking you to change course right away. Da 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 da. Identify yourself. And they kept going on, and that they, I'm the I'm the admiral of this ship. Change course, whatever. As we're getting closer, uh, I'm I'm commanding you to to uh, change course. When finally, it says, "Do what you like," uh, but I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> And I'm guarding the rocks here. So the point is, I didn't do that very well, but you get my point. All of a sudden, when you're in crisis, a paradigm shift. Everything changed at that moment when, when he realized that what he perceived was not reality and he had to make a shift because everything changed. So 
principles that we're giving you today and that we will continue to give you that are in the Bible, and there's thousands more, and the references are on our website. You can go to Watermark uh, Ministries Resources, go to Recovery, and under Recovery, there's a scroll-down menu that says Prodigal, and all of our references, all of our talks for 24 weeks are all on there. You can hear these in full. There's outlines, there's handouts, and there's Scripture references and resources. And those are the inerrant truths guiding us away from the rocks. They're our lighthouses, right? So you're just going to decide whether you're going to be a battleship and be stubborn and you're going to ask the lighthouse to change or you're going to say, you know what? That's not changing. That's truth. And I'm going to be guided by the lighthouses in my life.